0: Radio Lockdown is a Neptune podcast. Hello there and welcome to Radio Lockdown. I'm Justin Macarthur. Before we keep going with the show, I just wanted to offer a quick correction. We do talk about sea slugs later on in the show, which I'm very excited about. I'm keen to get to that discussion, but I did at one point conflate sea slugs with nudibranches, nudibranches being an order of marine gastropods that are sometimes referred to as sea slugs, but aren't the only marine gastropods known as sea slugs. This is obviously a a huge error on my part, and I apologize unreservedly, especially to the sea slugs that I completely left out. I'm talking, of course, about Placobranchoidea, Cephalospidia, Anaspidia, Thecosomata, Gymnosomata, and Onchidia Day, among other forms of marine gastropod. I think with that out of the way, we can move on with the show in a spirit of community. I'm so excited for this one. This is really fun. How are you today, Darcy?
1: I'm uh, I'm trifle dusty. (laughs)
0: lockdown What a wonderful band name for your country band.
1: I don't want to be in that band, but I I see where
0: you're going. Look, we're just moving in a different creative direction. I think the band is going to do better continuing without you, but I appreciate your contributions. (laughs) You
1: just steal my band, my, like, pathetical band.
0: I'm sorry. Trifle Dusty, I think we're more about the music.
1: No, I want to be the Harry Styles of this situation.
0: You're going to be the Harry Styles? Yes,
1: I'm going to branch off, do awesomely, and have... Just the best wardrobe. Have you seen that dude's wardrobe? Oh my God. He's a
0: stylish fellow. I didn't, I genuinely was not intending that as a pun. I just realized what I did there. Oof. And I'm so sorry to our audience. Normally I would do that and I would wink it in. You could hear the wink in my voice if I was doing it intentionally, (laughs) but you can't hear the wink today. There's no wink. You know what I could hear today that was just soul destroying? (laughs) i'm keen to see where this segue goes
1: we went we went to um caught with some friends went out for brunch lovely right as we're waiting to be seated the place next door is drilling into concrete i just, i'm so hungover. over why does that need to be happening this place is like newly opened
0: and the pricks next door are like yes this is the time. It must be something that happens with new cafes all the time, right? Because like they're, they open up, they're in a developing neighborhood. So of course there's going to be construction around, but you'd kind of think just, just give them a week, you know, just shut down the construction for a couple <laughs> of days to let them have their sunshine. Just like, on a Clearly sunday morning
1: not something that needed to be happening right away there was no urgency to the scene.
0: well what you don't know is that there's buried treasure under that concrete oh they'd
1: want to bloody well be quite frankly <laughs>
0: <laughs> they're digging for gold there's gold in them their streets um, how was brunch? Was it was it good? Yeah, it was good.
1: <laughs> it was quiet inside, so
0: that was fun. Well, this would be a very quiet and mellow podcast, and also rapid fire, because you expressed an interest last time in having a slightly shorter episode. You you said you enjoyed the Christmas episode, yeah? Yes. And you wanted to do a recapture that energy? Sure. <laughs> you have no memory of what you said, but I listened back to it and edited. It, so <laughs> I know you said that.
1: But- my memory is um real good. Also derailing you was funny.
0: It's a good time, but I will stay relentlessly on track because I am a master professional podcaster for hire. If anyone out there would like to hire me as a podcast producer, you can get in touch. Oh,
1: what a sellout. This is why we didn't want you in the band.
0: Why did I get kicked out of the band? Oh, no. <laughs> Maybe the band just needs to break up and I can be the Zayn Malik to your Harry Styles.
1: Oh. He seems fine. He's doing all right,
0: right? Look, he had a good run, honestly.
1: Yeah. Do you ever think about that, like an actor that you haven't seen doing work in a while or something like that? And you're like, oh, I guess they may not need to
0: work. Their show got syndicated. They could probably just sit around swimming in money, just in a big old money pool. Well, <laughs> it's it's funny, isn't it? Like I think I may have mentioned this off air, but I've recently been getting into the TV show Monk. <laughs> the Tony Shaloub vehicle from I want to say 2002 is when that started airing. Oof. It's not um modern. But it kind of it kind of gives me and this is the greatest praise I can give any detective show. It kind of gives me Columbo vibes and I'm a big I'm a big Columbo head. I've yeah. often said it. Uh, you can go back, I've said it almost every episode of this podcast, big old Columbo Yeah, you just
1: won't shut up about Columbo. So
0: I feel like between that and your Midsummer Murders, I feel like we're both...
1: <laughs> we're both right on the cutting edge of culture.
0: <laughs> deep in the procedurals, my goodness.
1: I, I don't have that as a... Like a Columbo, I don't have that as a touchstone in terms of like detective stories.
0: I think like uh Monk and Jonathan Creek are both heavily inspired by Columbo. So if you think Jonathan Creek oh, have you watched any of that?
1: So much. So much excellent.
0: Well, it's, it's kind of got similar vibes because they're working from similar source material, even though they've taken it in different directions, like that kind of a socially awkward slash incompetent comedy detective. Mm. And they have an assistant who helps them out and is much nicer and more palatable as a person. Sherlock and Watson. Whereas Columbo is just one guy doing that for the entire show. And he's just like deliberately unpalatable half the time and then very charming. It's just one dude being both John Watson and Sherlock Holmes in the same <laughs> wonderful man. Oh, um, dear. I don't know anything about Peter Falk outside that role. He may not be a wonderful man, but he comes across as a wonderful man.
1: He was the the nice grandpa who, who read to Fred Savage in um, Princess Bride.
0: He is indeed. It's my only point of reference. I'm pretty sure those are the two big roles. <laughs> Well, there you go. I, I love that man. You know, he had that syndication money, but he came back for the Princess Bride. So that you know, that says a lot about his character.
1: This is what I mean. Like Jennifer Aniston doesn't need to make movies. I don't know why we're discussing this. Did you have any news that you wanted to share?
0: I might have some news. What have you got up your need... sleeve, you strange little fellow? But sometimes we need something to get us hype for the news. Woo! Some sort of news theme. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you get. <laughs> I love that. That's I mean it's going into the supercut. I've said it before, I'll say it again. I'm doing a supercut of every news theme. Um it's gonna happen. Hey,
1: the the thing you did with the Midsummer Murders last week, that was a banger.
0: <laughs> that was very fun. I didn't put almost any production into that. Oh, dear. So there's a couple of stories this week, a little behind the scenes here. I have recently applied for a job, which I'll tell you about off air, but basically a podcast production job that involves working with kids' news stories. So I've been digging through science stories this week, looking for fun news stories. Mm. I've also, while I've been going through those, found a lot of COVID stories that are much less fun. And so no, I, I have a long fun list of ones.
1: them. <laughs> Why? Well,
0: what I could do is I could give you like one of the fun ones for kids. And then I could also give you one of the awful COVID ones.
1: Yeah. All right. Let's do it. Hit me up. Hit me up with the news.
0: So did you know that cuttlefish actually uh, passed the marshmallow test? Uh, this is a test that is used in psychology to explore the idea of delayed gratification. Essentially the idea behind the marshmallow test is I say to you Darcy, yeah, yeah, bro. Would you like one marshmallow now or if you don't have a marshmallow now, you could have two marshmallows later?
1: Oh, I want two marshmallows because, you know, I'm not a child.
0: Well, excellent. I'm going to just leave you in this room with this one marshmallow on a plate and then um when I come back in 10 minutes, I'll bring a second marshmallow for you. And if the first marshmallow is still here, you can you can have both of them then. How do you feel about that?
1: Oh, 10 minutes is so long. You should do this test to me when I'm not hungover.
0: I want that marshmallow.
1: <laughs> I want that marshmallow and maybe to cry a little bit. <laughs> Strong and defined goals. Yeah, yeah, sure. Wait 10 minutes, then two marshmallows. Mm, marshmallows.
0: So cuttlefish, it turns out, can delay gratification in this way. And those that do wait the longest do better in a learning test, scientists have discovered. So it actually has a correlation to other skills that cuttlefish may have. So that's an exciting uh, news story about cuttlefish. That's
1: horrifying. Oh, cuttlefish the boobs are so creepy with the
0: little...
1: Also... With that test. That's
0: a great cuttlefish impression.
1: Thank you. With that test, I very much want them to still be using marshmallows. I know that they may not be, but in my head.
0: Yeah, they, they do <laughs> for cuttlefish marshmallows. It becomes
1: slightly less horrifying or more horrifying depending on how hard I think about it. To imagine a cuttlefish like but on two marshmallows being like I made the right choice.
0: This is audio poison, please stop. <laughs> But you have to stop making this noise. But it's exactly what a cuttlefish would sound like. Darcy, people listen to this podcast voluntarily. It's,
1: just, it's like ASMR or whatever, you know? There's the
0: opposite of... Darcy, that is the opposite of ASMR. It's a
1: very pleasant
0: do you, noise. Do you know what ASMR is?
1: A great noise how dare you
0: you can listen to your cuttlefish impression to fall asleep just
1: fall asleep to it gentle dulcet tones
0: oh. i guess it speaks slightly less to their ability to delay gratification if they never wanted a marshmallow <laughs> because they're cuttlefish
1: <laughs> oh what a cuttlefish even to eat krill that-
0: what do cuttlefish eat? There we go. Top results. Apart oh, from marshmallows, which we've definitely established is clearly what they're eating. Cuttlefish are impressive predators. They're able to catch large, fast-moving prey such as fish and crustaceans like crabs, shrimps, and prawns. That is a terrifying. I don't want to know how they catch crabs. They're blah, blah, blah. <laughs> maws, <moors>, you know? <laughs> So moving swiftly on. <laughs> Much like a cuttlefish on a crab. This headline strikes me as a little bit obvious, but maybe you will experience it differently. So we're officially, this is one way of leading off this story, I suppose, we're one year into the COVID pandemic. It was officially declared a pandemic by the World Health Organization this time last year. So after a year, what have we learnt? Or well, one of the things we've learnt is that there is a correlation between helpful behaviour and a recognition of common humanity. That's it. That's the headline.
1: Yay!
0: (laughs) And I would have thought that's relatively apparent, but I'm glad that someone has... You know, not all science has to be exciting, groundbreaking stuff. Sometimes you need to prove the things that seem obvious because what if they're not?
1: Sometimes you need to replicate the experiment, guys. It's a very important part of the scientific process.
0: Right. (laughs) So this very boring study comes from the University of Washington, uh, in the United States.
1: They probably wanted something nice to focus on, you know.
0: (laughs) It's it's all the stuff you might expect. People who recognize the connections they share with others are more likely to wear a mask, follow health guidelines, and help people even at a potential cost to themselves. Indeed and I'm reading this from the press release by the University of Washington, an identification with all humanity as opposed to identification with a geographic area like a country or town predicts whether someone will engage in what they call pro-social behaviours particular to the pandemic, such as donating their own masks to a hospital or coming to the aid of a sick person. So, yeah, turns out if you identify with people, you're more likely to help people.
1: What oh, was the expression or is it pro- pro-social
0: behaviours? Yeah, pro-social is the, is the term they've used as kind of like a catch-all term for a couple of different ideas. I like it. They talk about the predictors of helpful behaviour. When they break down regions, they break down association with their community, which has a fairly high... Correlation with helping out, identification with your nation, which actually doesn't have all that much to do with whether you're helping out, but then common humanity is the most significant predictor variable they looked at. So more than your age, your gender, your education, it has a larger effect on cooperative behavior and i guess it gives us and maybe this is stuff that we've kind of intuited a little bit in putting together this podcast but it could have implications for public health messaging right appealing to our sense of connectedness with others not just on a national or a regional level but on a broader humanity level could encourage some people to get vaccinated wear masks or follow other public health guidelines so that's pretty cool I didn't say all the COVID stories were evil and, you know, <laughs> and would, would make you give up on the world. I think,
1: Justin, what we can all sort of appreciate is
0: Dolly uh, Parton
1: changing the words of Jolene to Vaccine. And calling people that don't get the vaccine chicken shit.
0: Oh, we haven't even talked about that. Yeah, that's that's a fun one. That happened. I mean, that happened a little while ago now. But oh my goodness! Just, just if you need a pick me up, Whew, that woman, future Justin, copy that in here. <laughs> well, hey, it's me. I'm finally going to get my vaccine. I'm so excited. So I just want to say to all of you cowards out there, don't be such a chicken
1: squat. Get out there, and get shot. I even changed one of my songs to fit the
0: occasion. It goes, vaccine, 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 vaccine. I'm begging of you, please don't hesitate. Vaccine,
1: vaccine, vaccine, vaccine. Because once you're dead, then that's a bit too late. (laughs) I know I'm trying to be funny now, but I'm dead serious about the vaccine.
0: What a sweetheart. She's great. Another thing that's great... Did you know that bee larvae, hang on, (laughs) that bee larvae drum with their butts?
1: I did not know that bee larvae drum with their butts. I I struggle to understand how that has
0: passed me by. Well, it's only a recent discovery. Uh, So this is a story from the 15th of March. Obviously, a cocoon, if you are a larva, is not very mobile, you are pretty much stuck there and predatory wasps take advantage of this by laying their eggs in plant stems where they know that bee larva uh, sorry bee larvae are living so one way of mitigating that because the wasps use kind of like echolocation to figure out where the cocoons are Mm -hmm. bee larvae have multiple calluses on their cocoons and they use that to tap out a chorus inside the stem of the plants where they're living. The wasps tap on the stem so the larvae start tapping themselves and they have two separate parts of their body that this is the first time it's been discovered in any species having two separate parts that appear to have developed independently both for percussive effects. They play a sound that has actually been recorded by scientists and I will layer in here.
1: Amazing.
0: What a sound. Bees butt drumming. I mean, neither of us have heard this (laughs) just now. We're lying to you. This is an illusion, which I'm now breaking. We are lying to you. You should not trust us. Consume media critically. Um... (laughs) But anyway, what a sound we just listened to, huh? Oh,
1: man, this is the eels all over again. And, uh, yeah, you can't whistle so good with a mask on, turns out.
0: You can't whistle with a mask. This is... It
1: just just sounded like I was breathing heavily.
0: That's actually probably closer to the sound a cuttlefish makes.
1: (laughs) You don't know that.
0: I do. I speak to a lot of cuttlefish in the course of my work.
1: Cuttlefish sound like... And... They love marshmallows.
0: These are the two things
1: that I can firmly say I know about cuttlefish.
0: I'm so glad that you have confidence (laughs) and I have facts and together we have a show. (laughs) So there's a couple of kind of related stories here. I'm not sure if the latter is a response to the former. You'll see what I mean in a moment. Um, So... There is a story that's come out of Johns Hopkins Medicine, where they've developed a tool that accurately predicts the risk of COVID-19 progressing to severe disease or death. The idea behind it is that people that are practicing in the field start to recognize patterns as they treat more and more patients. And become better equipped to identify which people are going to need referrals on to, you know, for more serious treatment, but is still underdeveloped as an area that people know about. So what might be a useful way of bringing it together in the interim between doctors collecting this information and there being kind of one accepted series of criteria for what's the most serious and what's the least serious, they've brought in some machine learning AI to look at doctor's notes. and
1: All those AI got to be really good at reading doctor's handwriting.
0: <laughs> <laughs> clinical variables are entered at the patient's bedside, and then that gives the patient a personalised clinical prediction of developing severe disease or death in the next day and week. At any point in the first two weeks of hospitalisation, the tool Enables a medical team to make more informed decisions about how to treat the patient. So that's amazing. That's very cool. It's very helpful. The basis of it is a predictive algorithm that. Rather than basing the patient's risk on their condition when they first get to the hospital, it adapts to the patient information and it considers the changes in those measurements over time, says the article I'm looking at. The way it does that is it breaks the hospital stay into six-hour windows and it looks at the development of their condition at each window. Then I'm trying to figure out how to explain machine learning in a podcast way. (coughs) Essentially, it then takes a thousand shots at what might happen. Mm-hmm. and it sees what the more likely outcomes are and what the less likely outcomes are. Mm-hmm. So it does the, what is it, the Doctor Strange thing? It looks at a thousand timelines, and then it sees what things are more likely based on possible futures. Hey, what was that? Went forward in
1: time to view alternate futures, to see all the possible outcomes of the coming conflict.
0: How many did you see?
1: Fourteen million six hundred five. How many did we win?
0: One. It appears to be quite effective. However, as indeed the press release mentions, physicians sworn to do no harm may be reluctant to base treatment and care strategies for their most seriously ill patients on difficult-to-use or hard-to-interpret machine learning algorithms. And this is something that is not just particular to this machine learning algorithm, of course, but is a perennial problem with machine learning that is trained on a data set, but then you can't necessarily look at the exact reasons it's making every decision. Mm. In the same way that we learn from taking in a lot of data, but then you can't always cite your sources. You can't always say why do I think this thing? Where did I get this idea from? And the way that you test a machine learning system for that information is the same way you would test a person for that information. uh, And and in trying to figure out how accurate it is, how likely it is to come up with the right answers, you feed it uh, data that you already expect to come out a certain way, and then you see how it actually comes out, which is how we've been able to see that certain machine learning algorithms in the past have been, you know, racist and stuff (laughs) So this one isn't that we know of. So far, we don't think this one is racist. Oh, that's that's some rough stuff. I think that the useful thing from what I've read of that article there is that the data it's using to make predictions is numbers, not words. The problem with using uh, what's called natural language processing, which is basically taking Uh, This would be where you would be taking clinicians notes on the patient for example rather than the numbers so you can imagine you could say your heart is pumping at a certain number of beats per minute or you could say blood pressure is high. Okay, Mm. So if you're processing blood pressure is high, then that's natural language and potentially subjective Mm. and potentially contains nuance that the machine might not understand. Or you have the number which the machine will assess against other numbers. And machines doing this kind of learning can more quickly adapt to numbers. It's not to say that they can't adapt to words. But when machines are using natural language processing, they're much more likely to persist with the same biases that exist in the input data, which is where you get... um, Racist robots. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'm sure that we can uh, discuss this in more depth with someone that knows what they're talking about at some point. But there have been, for example, AI... or not AI systems. Uh, Artificial intelligence is kind of a murky word to use around this, but there have certainly been machine learning algorithms that have been used, for example, to determine the length of sentences in the United States for certain crimes... And they have reflected the fact that like African-Americans tend to get longer sentences historically in the training data. And therefore, the algorithm recommends longer sentences to people from, for example, certain postcodes. Oh, boy.
1: Yeah. So, interesting. If you're using doctor's notes, black women, it's really, this is generalization from something I've half remembered, but it's really hard for them. They um, are expected to tolerate a lot more pain. Than the average person. yes
0: this this is the other thing I was going to bring up actually um, I don't have the I don't have the source for that in front of me but I will put that in the show notes but yeah there is an expectation and this is research that's come out of the United States but basically black women in particular have worse health outcomes and that has been tied to a higher expected pain threshold. So doctors basically think that they can deal with more than white women experiencing the same problems, which means that, you you know, you diagnose differently, you administer different painkillers, people suffer more and die more.
1: Women in general will be believed less. You know, I have this problem. No, you don't. Things like that that make endometriosis really, really difficult to get a diagnosis for. Yeah. Oh, there's a woman who wrote a book called... I have it near me somewhere basically about how a lot of technology doesn't consider the female body. Can you
0: still hear me? Uh, you phased out a little bit there. Are you searching for something? or?
1: Yes. The book is called Invisible Women, Exposing Data, Life in a World Designed for Men. She talks about how the symptoms for a stroke in women are different. So, Justin, what do you understand are the symptoms of a stroke? What are the generalised ones that we all know?
0: Smelling burnt toast.
1: Yeah, and the pain up the left arm, I think it is. Right. That's generally just for men. For women, it can be a whole bunch of other things, but it's not those two necessarily. So women don't know how to figure out if they're having a stroke or not because no one's giving them the medically specific information for them. It's just not something that they've really studied or considered too much further. So, women in medicine, very interesting, and uh, race in medicine, very soul-destroying.
0: <laughs> and this is why I'm inclined to believe that the second article, which is from the University of Cambridge, and it's called Use of AI to Fight COVID-19 Risks Harming Disadvantaged Groups, experts warn. This was released five days after the other article, and I don't know if they're throwing shade (laughs) on the other article. It doesn't... I'm sure they're not, right? Because these are studies that were commissioned at the same time, but you know you can't help but think they're in some way connected because they are they have come out in a very short space of time and and presumably they're reflections on the same state of discussion so the article and I'll just start reading from the from the press release here jump in if you want to say anything about it Rapid deployment of artificial intelligence and machine learning to tackle coronavirus must still go through ethical checks and balances, or we risk harming already disadvantaged communities in the rush to defeat the disease. This is according to researchers at the University of Cambridge's Leverholm Centre for the Future of Intelligence, which sounds really rad. I know. It also is apparently really bloody expensive, and so I'm not going to be looking at ethics in machine learning. Sorry, I that's not my next line of study. <laughs> um, there's a couple of articles they've published, and they have cautioned against the, quote, blinkered use of AI for data gathering and medical decision-making as we fight to regain some normalcy in 2021. It looks at the data sets that are used to train and refine machine learning algorithms, the way that it skews, especially against people that use health services less regularly. So one of the problems, even in using numbers as the basis for your clinical analysis, is that if certain groups don't present as often with symptoms and the virus manifests differently in different people, then you're going to have the data trained less on those people and therefore likely to have less tailored outcomes at the very least. Not necessarily actively negative outcomes, but less tailored and personalised, which was the the main pitch of the article I was just reading. Mm. And in particular, the groups that access health services less frequently, this is in the UK, but I think this does apply in other countries as well, people of lower socioeconomic status, minority ethnic communities I mean th- this is fairly common across the board that people that have less money don't go to doctors as much like that's <laughs> that's fairly common and people um, especially people that don't speak the language of or the most commonly spoken language of the country that they're in um, are less likely to seek medical help in that country because language barriers restrict you from doing lots of different stuff it's harder it reminds be. Me- you know
1: in uh, an older generation, they sort of get together and after a while, you know, weird stories bubble up. You ever gone on like a long drive with like your mum or your dad and just a weird story will crop up from their childhood?
0: No. It's <laughs> just me. No, I've, of course that's happened. Of course that's happened. Did you have one in mind?
1: Yes, basically. Um, so mum was telling the story of a friend who she grew up with. Her family speaks Italian at home. Her friend had to go to a doctor's appointment one day and mum was asking her, Oh, is something wrong? Are you okay? And she said, No, I have to go with a member of our community because she was interpreting for the women in her community when they wanted to talk to the doctors. And this like thirteen, fourteen year old girl had to go along, you know, probably blushing bright red, going, This is the issue, I think. Please help this lady. But it's that, yeah, the disconnect there is that otherwise, you know, those ladies wouldn't be going to the doctors because they couldn't explain accurately what was happening to them.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I went on a student exchange in Berlin, a city that largely speaks English, and, you know, I didn't go and get a haircut because I was like, that's going to be an awkward interaction, you know? <laughs> I, because I'm, I might not have the German that I might not need for this interaction, you know, like, and that was in a very welcoming situation Mm. where it was not a high risk situation and that sort of thing. We
1: did, we did go get haircuts in Japan and, uh, my mate and I knew like only like two or three words and we knew choto meant, um short, when she did want her hair cut short, uh-huh. not as short as she got it. <laughs> she was all oh, shaved no. and it was the middle of winter. We got, we got out of the hairdressers and she was like, look, it's not terrible, but I'm going to buy a really big hat because it's bloody freezing. <laughs> <laughs> chato! Chato!
0: Segoy <laughs> this ne! <there. laughs> Algorithms in the UK are being used not just for diagnostic criteria, but also to determine vaccine allocation. I'm just going to read from the article. In December, protests ensued when Stanford Medical Center's algorithm prioritized home workers for vaccination over those working in COVID wards. As Dr. Alexa Haggerty says, algorithms are now used at a local, national, and global scale to define vaccine allocation. And in many cases, AI plays a central role in determining who is best placed to survive the pandemic. So this is quite important stuff, and I guess especially in the UK, which has just seen a record-breaking vaccine rollout. Uh, They've now vaccinated more than the entire population of Australia. They, in one day last week, vaccinated 660,000 people. Um, Like an incredible rollout in the UK. But it is also important that the systems that support that in moving rapidly, in deploying as many resources as possible, don't leave out minority communities i mean we we've already talked about this in the context of the of the melbourne lockdown where minority communities were kind of left aside in the rush to shut down, like, that big apartment complex, right? Mm. Um, there was very little communication, even though a lot of those people did not have English as a first language and the translations provided by the government were were not very good. In fact, there was one document that was released where I believe half the document was in Arabic and half of it was in Farsi. <laughs> like, two different languages as the two halves of the message. Mm. There has been... Huge issues in government responses. Setting aside the AI in accommodating minority communities, and it's important that AI deployment doesn't doesn't hit that. But but it is lucky, I guess, uh, that the research being done at Johns Hopkins is largely around numbers more than words. As I said earlier, that should hmm. make things a little neater. Do you Want to hear another story for for younger listeners? Yes. Uh, a, another another nicer story.
1: <laughs> yes. It's My cuttlefish noise is how cuttlefish say yes I hate this
0: What's the next story Justin Do you want to hear about the national sea slug census Or the surfboard that was found after 16 months at sea It's all very nautical (laughs) Yeah I suppose we've covered cuttlefish and sea slugs and surfboards It's going to be a very This is very aquatic This is like eels part 2 or whatever
1: Why are pirates pirates Justin because they are. Uh, so that surfboard—that's a long time. Was it taken by a friendly pod of seals? Uh,
0: you want to do the surfboard first? I've just brought up the other one. <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right, sea slugs. How do you count all the sea slugs? It seems like a really, really boring day, or or fascinating. Some sea slugs are pretty.
0: Well, you haven't seen you haven't seen what these sea slugs look like. They're all pretty.
1: Are they like the yellow ones with the bright blue spots?
0: I'm going to link you to this. This is an article from the ABC entitled Nudie Nerds Turn Out for Annual Sea Slug Count and Find a Blaze of Underwater Colour. That is a very blazingly colourful sea slug. So essentially a bunch of divers in 2013 sat down to compare notes over coffee talking about the number of sea slugs there were and wouldn't it be great if we could go out and see how many we can find. So this started an annual sea slug census in 2013. This was started by Professor Stephen Smith of Southern Cross University, who I think is Australia's most heroic Steve Smith. Um, that's just a cricket joke. a did flat. It <laughs> fell a bit flat on the audience in the room, but hopefully it plays well to the audience at home. He's
1: not a filthy cheat. Didn't Steve Smith cheat?
0: Yeah, he... he well... I mean, he was the captain when they cheated. I know stuff. Did he cheat?
1: Yes, maybe. No, he had knowledge potentially, but he said he didn't. Anyway.
0: So more than 50 citizen scientists surveyed 23 locations this March, finding 131 species of sea slugs on the Coral Coast in WA. And it follows a similar event that took place on the Coffs Coast in New South Wales. There were, in fact, new undescribed species of sea slugs, which are also known as uh, nudie branches, which is where we get the nudie nerd nickname from. And it's it's quite exciting. Apart from the fact that sea slugs are, quote, so popular with divers, The other important part of it is that they have very short life cycles. And so you can really tell how quickly they're responding to the environment because you have so many more generations in a short time. And it shows, uh, the data they've collected shows that they're being found, the tropical ones are being found a lot further south. And that indicates that they might be able to be an indicator species for the development of climate change in aquatic areas because you can count how many sea slugs there are in a certain area, so how far they've migrated from the tropics indicates the effect that's happening on the broader oceans. And it's kind of a fun way that we can measure climate change as opposed to an incredibly depressing way. So that's fun. <laughs>
1: Yay! Do you want to hear another pirate joke? Yes. Yes. <laughs> What's a pirate's favorite food? Artichoke.
0: Is it? Is it because artichokes have hearties?
1: Artichokes <laughs> me hearties. And it actually runs uh, to our you. other
0: story about the. Sorry, Darcy. I'm going to have to put you on hold because I'm getting a call from Darcy. What? What just happened? I was still on the Skype call on my end. And then I got a call from you <laughs> while I was still talking to you. So oh, that's, that's fun. That's messed up. What did you last hear from me?
1: Um, slugs are great. And uh, they can be a thing that you can check if climate changes are coming.
0: Had I talked about the East Australian current yet?
1: Yes, because they were going into the warmer spots.
0: <laughs> yeah, essentially uh, both they're traveling into warmer spots and also the currents are changing because... Uh, The temperature of the water is changing. And that actually ties into our other story about the lost surfboard. Explain yourself. The surfboard was lost four years ago. And it was lost off the south coast of Tasmania. Oh my. So this surfer thought, I'm never going to see this surfboard again. And then the parents of the kids that found it in northern Queensland visited Tasmania and by chance mentioned to some locals that their sons had found a surfboard. That's crazy. And it turned out to be this guy's surfboard covered in uh, goose barnacles, which are basically the barnacles that you think of when you think of barnacles. They're the ones that are shaped like shells that you often see on the bottom of, like, ships and stuff. Mm -hmm. For keel hauling. Yeah, so I'll I'll send you this article as well. Uh, which is again from the ABC. This one we're not going to
1: dive deep on keel hauling.
0: I wasn't. Uh, did you want to dive deep on keel hauling, <laughs> guys? Keel hauling is this truly horrible thing that pirates used to do to each other because barnacles would go at the bottom of a ship, right?
1: So if you committed mutiny, for example, what they would do is <laughs> until something came up and ate you, or you died of blood loss.
0: Keel hauling sounds a lot more fun than um, the thing you just said. Actually, I
1: know. And then every now and again...
0: I resent you bringing this into the kids' story section.
1: Do you ever... That's what I was going to say. Is like, Do you ever, like, when, like, a little kid dresses up as a pirate and you're like, ooh...
0: <laughs> I will have you know that for my year six or seven festive night at Kippen Park Primary School, I dressed as Captain Feathersword and I was a brilliant Captain Feathersword. I will have you know. Any... Rude words that are to be said about the pirate name.
1: Kevin Featherhood is obviously uh, the best example of good child pirating because he's a pacifist. His sword is made of feathers, Justin.
0: It's true. It's true. I think that what he has done is he's actually appropriated the pirate brand that so many kids, uh, that appealed to so many kids through violence and he's turned it into, you know, a symbol of peace. <laughs>
1: yeah, there's probably some good theory behind that because the... The original Wiggles were all um, starting to be teachers and the reason that they have the different covered skivvies is because they decided to do a song or something for a uni project and the skivvies were like $5 at Kmart in the bargain basement and they were like boom, 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 different colours, good stuff, kids are like that.
0: And they do a lot. It turns out kids really like bright colours. Who knew? Mm. This is a new thing that we've all learned about kids.
1: Although... Uh Italian child educator, not the big one that you're all thinking of though. Not Montessori. It's a different one. Suggests that if you put kids in more natural colours in their environment that'll actually help them with focus. Like looking at something green, even if it's not um like an actual plant, but looking at the colour green can help you focus.
0: This is why I keep uh Dorothy the dinosaur on my desk at all times, just so that I can You know, ground myself. It all
1: comes out now. This is why the band broke up. It's because Justin just would not get over his die-hard wiggle obsession.
0: Ooh, jiggy, jiggy, jiggy. Give me that food. So (laughs) the article from the ABC entitled Lost Surfboard Found After Four Years and 2,700 Kilometre Journey. It's a cool story. Um, And I will send this one to you as well in Skype. Oh, in fact, I just have. Yeah,
1: looking at the surfboard.
0: Look at those barnacles. It looks real gross. If you
1: rubbed up against that, you would definitely die of blood loss eventually. So that's real fun.
0: (laughs) Those are some kids' science stories. Here's another fun story, but it is related to COVID. It has been found that breastfeeding mothers do not transfer COVID through breast milk, but do transmit COVID antibodies.
1: Ah, that's cool.
0: Yeah. This is kind of cool, right? Because
1: in some places... You need to fact check this because I don't. I only know this from I think like weird medical procedurals. Um, you can sell your breast milk to people that can't produce breast milk or I don't know want it for their kids. Yeah, I haven't got time to express. Or breast milk's a tricky area, man. Because like there was that big push in America where they say breast is best, but if disadvantaged women, I haven't got time. Or if you're back in the workplace, some workplaces don't allow it, even though it's discrimination. Anyway, putting all of that aside, there are some places where you can buy breast milk, right? So imagine how much money your COVID antibody breast milk would go for. You'd be like, this is basically a vaccine that's coming from my boobs.
0: I mean, and this is why I'm sure that this is another source of vaccine that we are going to see very soon. Um, But um, I'm horrified by having just said that so i'm gonna move swiftly on
1: (laughs) you reckon it could be
0: like a vaccination latte (laughs) that's the podcast that's the episode heading okay you're all good make some latte art
1: (laughs) it's a little little syringe but like with like a little line through it that's the latte art you're like no man you're all good just drink this Inoculate yourself. I can't... Antibodies from my
0: body. <laughs> I can't think of anything that embodies my brand more than vaccine latte. I feel like <laughs> My God. That, that is a powerful phrase. Let's let's leave out the breast milk element of that, but just focus on the idea. That's the squeaky bit. That's that bit you know, that's 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 a bit difficult, but like once we're past that, let's just get onto the phrase vaccine latte because that has market potential. Holy shit. If, like, bulletproof coffee went big. Imagine COVID-proof coffee.
1: That was a bit cute. Did you see ABC did an article on um, the big uptick in coffee drinking in Britain? Because they're in lockdown, the only thing you can sort of do is go outdoors have a walk around so uh, instead of going out for a few beers you go out for a nice hot coffee there's a couple of australians setting up um really you know like our style
0: cafes cafes like we have yeah like the nice ones where the coffee's good so the study which was published on the 9th of february in the journal mBio, analyzed 37 milk samples that were provided by 18 women diagnosed with covid19 None of the milk samples were found to contain the virus, and nearly two-thirds of the samples did contain two antibodies that are specific to the virus. And this, in combination especially with another study that I'm going to get to in a moment, indicates that mothers suspected of having COVID and even mothers that are actually COVID-19 positive should not be separated from their newborn children. This is something that has been happening, around the world and this is i guess ties into the broader idea that this is still a developing field and a lot of people are acting on their their intuitions it is not intuitive to say that a covid positive parent or even a covid unknown patient should be treated with their newborn child who may be very vulnerable But there are multiple studies now coming out indicating that parents and newborn children, as is the case in broader society, should not be separated. I'll get to the other study, but did you have anything to say on that?
1: No, that's nice. You know, you can stay with mum. Yay,
0: babies. And not only can you, but uh, in the case of vulnerable newborn children that are small or sick, the risk may actually be greater to those children removing them from their parents and not allowing that kangaroo care, that skin-to-skin contact.
1: That's what it's called? That's cute as shit. Aww. Yeah,
0: kangaroo mother care. Um, I've been reading about it a lot today because while I do think this study is really interesting, I think some of their numbers are a little bit dodgy. And I'm saying this as uh, I, I, I want to add every caveat to this, that I am not an epidemiologist um, or a mathematician or any of those things. It's a bit of a back of the notebook estimate to get the numbers that they come up with. But in terms of the actual risk scenario and of the ultimate conclusion they come to, it, that is absolutely watertight. Healthcare workers that are caring for small and sick newborns are particularly stressed by a lack of PPE, lack of resources, including oxygen, and fear for their own health. And as a consequence of this and, and other factors, two thirds of 1,120 healthcare workers surveyed worldwide would choose to separate mothers and babies with a positive or unknown COVID 19 status. <laughs> this is not to criticize those healthcare workers. Because boy, it is, you know, they are absolutely champions. Every single one of them, you know, doing the work that they do is incredibly vital and they're only responding to the best information that's out there. But the information that's out there is changing. And the indication is that kangaroo mother care, which is basically the idea that especially newborn infants that are at risk. Should actually receive skin-to-skin contact and that can provide um, the phrase that I liked is from Wikipedia the value of kangaroo care is that it ensures physiological and psychological warmth and bonding Mm. the stable body temperature of the parent can actually help to regulate the newborn child's temperature more smoothly than an incubator can it allows for more readily accessible breastfeeding and It also means that you basically don't have to have a medical professional when the baby needs to be breastfed and that sort of thing all the time. It's it's the, the baby is right there. And that may actually be more valuable while healthcare resources are strained. Of course, the impulse there is to not do that because in every other part of healthcare, the correct thing to do has been to keep people as apart as possible. But especially for these newborn children, it can be very valuable.
1: It's good to hear that those mothers can stay with their babies. That's nice.
0: It is, it is. But yeah, I think that's, that's been a very long news roundup, but I, I really, I couldn't help but drop many, many stories this week because I've just been reading really interesting stuff. Or I think it's interesting. Hopefully it's interesting to you, Darcy, Mm -hmm. or at least you're tolerating it (laughs) as best you can while hungover.
1: I've certainly learned some facts.
0: Hopefully it's interesting to our listeners and will be interesting to you later.
1: (laughs) It was interesting at the time. I'm just a little low energy today.
0: <laughs> Do you have another pirate joke for me? I don't. <laughs> I really let you down. What's uh what's a pirate's second favourite letter? What? Well their second favourite is R, because their first love is the C.
1: <laughs> Justin, we must end this podcast. <laughs> I mean entirely. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> <laughs>
0: This is our final episode of Radio Lockdown. Thank you so much for for listening to us. Uh, that this isn't our final episode. I'm hoping it's not a final episode, is it? No. Darcy, no, is, no, it? No. is it no? <laughs> we'll we'll have a much clearer announcement when it is our final episode. Until then, you're stuck with us for a few weeks longer. Uh, Darcy, do you have anything that you're looking forward to in the coming weeks, months, and years? Weeks,
1: months, and years. Oh my. Um. Oh, I bought some herbs and they're still alive. I bought, like, I planted some herbs and they're still alive. So I'm looking forward to watching them grow and flourish. It's nice.
0: That's cool. Yeah, I've, I've um, been managing to keep our uh, succulents alive. And, in fact, uh, Lily has just put on a new sprout uh, just this past week. I think that's what it's called. I'm a very good gardener.
1: That's the, that's the name of it? You haven't, like, given your succulent a name? Is,
0: is that is that what's happened? it has a new shoot. There's a new bit coming out of the ground. Well
1: that's exciting.
0: That's a shoot right? Yeah or a thing. Look I, I don't know much about plants but I, I've given them enough water. You will
1: by next episode I'm gonna ask you some further exploratory questions about plants.
0: I'm gonna hold you to that. All that's left to say is have a uh, have a happy Easter, I guess, if you celebrate that. And we will be back for the next show in a fortnight's time. Uh, yeah, you can find our stuff on Patreon. <laughs> Hang on, no, that's not the link. On Patreon.com/slash Neptune Today, you can also find us on you know all the podcast places and leave us a review. And get in touch. Yeah, send me an email, uh, Today at gmail.com. We're going to be doing some ads soon as well. Uh, we are partnering with another podcast to expand our podcast network, which is very exciting. So we'll have more news on that in the next show. Until then, thank you so much for listening. How do you want to end this one, Darcy? I
1: think you should end it by playing
0: Somewhere...
1: Beyond the sea, like we're
0: fading out of Finding Nemo. My was waiting for me. Bam, bam, bam. I'll go sailing. Exactly. I'll play something from Finding Nemo. <laughs> All right.
1: So now, now the podcast is over. What's this job you're applying for, man? <laughs>
0: You've been listening to Radio Lockdown, a Neptune podcast.